Good morning, Edgewater. You're doing well? Alive. Amen. Sometimes we just got to thank the Lord we're alive. That's right. He holds us. He holds us fast. He does. Well, this morning, if you got your Bibles with you, turn to Luke chapter 7 if you haven't already done so. Uh, that was a portion of scripture that we just read. And by the way, if you have your phone, feel free to go into uh, a Bible app. Uh, you can, you can, um, you can go ahead and look up the uh, the word there, and and you can also feel free to grab the the Bible that's right in front of you. And uh, if you don't have one, even take it home. Okay, so. Well, Luke chapter seven. Hey, before we get into into this passage and chop it up. In his autobiography, Charles Spurgeon uh, spends a chapter uh, telling us of the five years of agony he had prior to Christ saving him at the age of 15. Uh, Charles Spurgeon uh, was known as a prince of preachers, grew up in a pastor's home in Victorian England, and uh, he tells us in this chapter that he would often go to church because he had to, and he would read the Bible because he had to. Um, he had no other choice. He was with his family. Um, but it speaks of how the Holy Spirit took him deeper and deeper during these five years in seeing his own pride, self-righteousness, self-sufficiency, and unbelief. And he says... Much of the flimsy piety in his day, which I think can be applicable to today, was due to the fact that people professed salvation in Jesus. They said, I believe in Jesus. I believe in God that, yes, Jesus is my Savior. But there was no deep conviction of sin. The thought and the study and the looking into Scripture knowing what sin was, was absent. So he writes, too many think lightly of sin and therefore think lightly of the Savior. He who has stood before his God convicted and condemned with the rope about his neck is the man to weep for joy when he is pardoned, to hate the evil which has been forgiven him and to live to the honor of the redeemed, the redeemer by whose blood he has been cleansed. He later remarks of, of how it was at this time, after he kept digging and digging as the Spirit would lead him into understanding the depth of his sin, that the sweetness of the Savior and the power of the gospel was becoming more and more evident in his life and in his preaching. Friend, this morning, you know, church is not a good hobby. <laughs> Going to church, it, it, it's probably one of the worst hobbies you can have if you're looking for a pastime. <laughs> Why? Because you can be guilted into this hobby as you leave this hobby, you might feel empty and wonder, why do I even come back to it? But if you meet the risen Savior who forgives sins, church, the gospel, 
the scriptures become sweet as ever. When was the last time you saw your sin for what it was? Uh, when was the last time you tasted the sweet and savoring forgiveness of Jesus Christ? When was the last time it turned your world upside down that it let you with your hair down and weeping with gratefulness? Today we're going to be seeing how Jesus is the forgiver of all sins. And we're going to be looking at that in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. So I'm sure you've turned there already. Why don't I pray and let's just ask God to speak to us today. Lord, I thank you that we can come this morning and drink from your word. Thank you that it is living, it is active, it is, it is able to change our lives. And it's able to change our lives because it points us to you, Jesus. It points us to the gospel a transformative work that only you can do, we in the hands of a Savior. So this morning, would you, um, would you speak to us? Would you open up our minds, soften our hearts? And would you use me, Lord, as just a mouthpiece, as a beggar who has found bread, letting my brothers and sisters and other beggars where we found this bread and how it's satisfying us? It's in your name, your glorious name, Redeemer, Jesus, amen. amen. So what is sin? And what does it mean to be forgiven of sin? This morning we're landing in Luke chapter 7. And we're placed at a scene. A scene of a dinner. A type of banquet, a dinner that was put together by Simon. Jesus had been invited to eat at Simon's house, and amongst the guests wasn't just Jesus, there were other Pharisees, uh, teachers of the law, ones who guarded the way that the law of God was read and practiced and and had heard too. They were a very serious bunch. Don't, don't get me wrong. They, they liked to eat. They liked to be around people. But they were known for self-righteousness. With Jesus, as he had accepted this invitation, he's sitting with them. And as is customary, um, as a rabbi, he's asked to speak. He's asked to dialogue. And surely enough, as we land in this passage, even though we can't hear uh, the theological dialogue, the, 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 the dialogue of, of, of what's your perception of who God is and of how you interpret the law, Jesus, we know that that conversation was going on. And it wasn't just a conversation that was going on. Apparently, as Jesus is dining and the rest of the guests are reclining, talking, 
Luke tells us that a woman of the city who was a sinner, in other words, a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town, came crashing the party. See, this woman wasn't invited. This woman just made her way at the dinner. Now, she knew not to sit with the dinner guests, especially at this type of party. So she crashed a party, and she goes to where she wanted to go to, and that is to Jesus. And as she's standing behind him, we apparently notice that this woman is someone who perhaps Jesus knew, but who we know she knew Jesus. You see, Jesus had been speaking of the kingdom of God. Jesus had been sharing this good news of the gospel, that salvation through repentance, that salvation through faith in him was offered. And it was offered to both Jews and Gentiles and that he alone could forgive sin. This woman had found Jesus. And as she stood behind him with the gift that she had brought, all of a sudden, she began to buckle. She didn't want to cause too much commotion. She didn't want to bring attention to herself. But she couldn't help as she was in the presence of the forgiver. And Luke tells us that as she is standing behind Jesus, all of a sudden she breaks down and uncontrollably begins to sob. She begins to sob. She begins to weep. She, she shakes. And, 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 and as she has this alabaster jar, she, she begins to wet the feet of Jesus and, 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 and somehow also begin to pour the gift that she's brought. And, and again, not wanting to cause too much commotion, share out of the gratitude of her heart. Well, Simon sees this. And as the host, well, he's appalled. He doesn't like the view of this. You see, this woman is a defiled woman. She's a sinner. She was known around town. And he, as a Pharisee, of course, cannot be around defiled and sinful people. So the fact that she was even close to the dinner table that made him defiled. But not only was it defiling him, apparently it was defiling Jesus. And according to what we read, not only is she dirty, but if she's dirty and she's touching Jesus, who says he's a prophet, then he must not be a prophet. Because a prophet should remain undefiled. He begins to judge Jesus as a fraud, 
And he says, if this man were a prophet, speaks to himself. In other words, a man sent from God, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is teaching him. For she is a sinner. Let's pause here for a moment because there's something we can all connect with. I think the temptation in our minds is, is to say, you know, we, we're Jesus. But if we're really honest with ourselves, we can view ourselves in the shoes of both the sinful woman and Simon. Have you ever thought how our culture views sin or a sinner? I'm sure we can dissect it and come up with different perspectives, different points of views. But as I thought about this question, what is sin and what does it mean to be forgiven in our culture? I came up with three categories. And maybe you can add more to them. But the first category, I think if we were going to ask anyone what sin is, sin is something that is bad. Uh, Sin is something that has created havoc in the world. We see hatred in the world. We see violence. We see abuse, poverty, etc. And most of us would agree that sin is evil. It's problematic. It hurts. It leaves us broken, much like the testament of this woman. But here's where things begin, uh, things begin to get interesting. Even though we see sin as something that is bad, I think our world would tell us sin is something that's out there. In other words, sin is external. Sin is bad politicians, systems and tr structures that are not working, that need fixing and tweaking, employers, perhaps parents or friends that have turned their back on you, is whoever has done you and me harm. And while some of this may be true, how come we never see sin as internal? We, we judge people according to their actions and we judge quickly ourselves by our intentions, but never by our actions. Have you ever noticed that 99% of the time you and I drive, it's never our fault. <laughs> it's always someone else's fault. And when we run the red light, what do we say? We justify ourselves. We're like, I'm in a hurry. I'm sure people wouldn't understand. <laughs> but I think in our culture, we often hear, yes, sin is bad. It's hurtful. But it's out there. It's external. And it's based on structures, systems, other people. We're quick to point the finger to others. And we're quick to point the finger to others and judge. But I think thirdly, we would also see that, and this is interesting, because not only do we see sin as something that's bad and something that's out there, but what's interesting, too, is that with this whole driving illustration, have you ever noticed that you become the standard? And in other words, sin is what we make sin out to be. 
we draw the line of what goodness is. So if someone is not meeting that standard of goodness, then they're doing bad. Then that's a flawed system if it's not done the way I think it should be done. The standard of what makes sin, sin, all of a sudden becomes our own perceived goodness. Our self-righteousness. And this standard of goodness can take on several forms. We can go to Jewel and look at a parent who's dealing with a child who is throwing a tantrum. And we say, man, if, 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 if that parent would just do this and that, Follow my advice. They would just be better parents. Or, this has happened to me. <laughs> Why do my wife and kids sometimes just argue with me? <laughs> and if you're a parent here, you know what I'm talking about if you're married. I mean, for the most part, we're always right, right? <laughs> we know what we're talking about. Yeah, we got a few things to learn here and there, but for the most part, we're, we're on point. You know, we look at people through the lens, through a critical lens, and we judge them, especially if they hurt us, if they irritate us, or if they just, through our lens, are just wrong. Well, it's here, and as we pick up in verse 41, where Jesus instructs us on what sin really is. Because we can easily fall prey into what we think our culture's sin is. Jesus, knowing Simon's thoughts and judgmental attitude, turns away from the woman and looks at him and tells him a story. He says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. In, in Jesus' day, by the way, a denarii was a day's wage. So you would say, you know, that's, that's 50 days worth of work, or 500, which is almost a year and a half. And Jesus says, when these, when they could not pay, this moneylender canceled the debt of both. Simon, now which of them will love him more. And Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Now, why would Jesus be telling Simon this story? Eating at his home? The rest of the Pharisees? A woman is sobbing at his feet? A woman who was very well known in that town for things that she was shameful of. I think the reason why Jesus is telling the story is because, one, he wanted to make sure that Simon had the proper perspective of what sin was. That it wasn't his perceived notion of goodness, but God's. And then, two, you know, the gospel is both for the accomplished moralist and the messed up sinner. And Jesus here will be sharing the gospel with Simon. So Jesus here 
In this story, he says, look, there's, there's a money lender. And this money lender has two debtors. And with these debtors, these debtors each have two different types of debts. One debtor owes him $50. Let's put 50. The other one, 500. Now, Simon, I know you're self-righteous. You can owe him 50. And I know you perceive this woman to owe that money lender the 500. So we'll leave it at that. Jesus plays to his self-righteousness. But Simon, the problem is that they both still have a debt. And Simon, I need for you to see not only that they both still have a debt, but this is a debt that they cannot pay. This debt, this sin issue is something which they need to pay back. And the money lender has all the right in the world to receive his payment. Friend, Jesus here is, is giving us insight into our dilemma. I think Jesus here, and I would propose this, he's given us insight into the dilemma of humankind, our sin issue. That we are all debtors who have a debt problem. And that this problem, this issue, is not an external issue. It is an internal sin problem that dwells deep and rooted in us. For we are all born into this sin problem. Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, we were brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did our mother conceive us. Psalm 58 verse 3 says, The wicked go astray from the womb. They err from their birth, speaking lies. Friend, we're born in sin. There is no, it's out there and the problem is out there. The problem is here in each and every one of our hearts. And because we're born into sin, in our natural state, we lack any spiritual good before God. We're morally bankrupt, much like these debtors. And while we still bear God's image and are capable of doing good at some degree, our sin within us has turned us into enemies of a righteous God. Owing Him, And truth be told, owing him his honor. Theologian Robert Raymond summarizes our problem well when he says, man in his raw natural state as he comes from the womb is morally and spiritually corrupt in disposition and in character. Every part of his being, his mind, his will, his emotions, his affections, his conscience, his whole body has been affected by sin. And this is what total depravity speaks of. 
His understanding is darkened. His mind is at enmity with God. His very will to act is slave to his darkened and understanding and rebellious mind. His heart is corrupt. His emotions are perverted. His affections naturally gravitate to that which is evil and ungodly. His conscience is untrustworthy. And his body is subject to mortality. This is what humanity is. And that's why scripture tells us in Psalm chapter 14 verses 2 through 3 that the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who after, who, who after seek God they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Isaiah chapter, chapter 64 verse 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. They're like filthy rags in front of God's. Now, we may pause here and say, okay, well, that's, that's pretty steep. But come on, Jorge, you know, is, is everyone that bad? I mean, is, is all humanity in the same boat? The Bible tells us that we are. And in Psalm chapter 14, verse 2, no, says no one living is righteous before God. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, he says that we have all, all of us, you and I, we have all sinned and we've fallen short of God's holy standard. It just took that one sin to match up, to mess up our whole batch. And this is why the scriptures speak of God's coming judgment. Because in our sin, we are deserving. We deserve his righteous, just wrath. God's holy wrath. John 3.36, God tells us through the person of Jesus, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains in him. You see, sin is not only filthy, disgraceful, uh, breaking us. It's also an offense to God, to God's goodness, to his holiness, and therefore as a just and merciful God, he must justly punish the guilty. And why, you might say? Well, the reason why is because God cannot be false to his own character. He adheres to who he is. So this is the predicament that we're in. Humanity's in. We're dead we're spiritually broke, and according to Scripture, we're broken within. 
I can go ahead and just close my Bible and say amen. And we may just leave discouraged this morning. Wouldn't we? But that's not the complete goodness and gospel of God. You see, but God. It's not to negate everything that the scriptures have said of who we are. But it's to add. But God, the moneylender, the one who has had all the right to condemn us, he freely chooses to forgive our sins. Jesus says, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Friend, have you experienced the free forgiveness of God over your sins? Let me tell you something. The free forgiveness of God over our sins doesn't mean that now we, 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 we need to muster up some kind of a righteous standing through our own works to obtain that forgiveness. And to obtain somehow his approval and blessing. It also doesn't mean an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That, As we sometimes view forgiveness in our culture. It means one word. When God forgives, he says it's gone. He says it's forgiven. Your debt is paid for. You no longer own it or owe it. I've taken it up for you. And this is what this woman was acting upon. As she wept over Jesus' feet, thankful for the change that was taking place in her own heart, she was overcome with the reality of this is how much I owed and I was forgiven. I was dead. I was broken. I was lost. And this is, this is what the forgiveness of Christ has done for me. <laughs> you know, Simon, this was not music to Simon's ears. <laughs> but, this was, but this was a symphony to the woman. <laughs> this was a dead gong to Simon. But this was the music of the gospel being played over and over as the palpitation of her heart to this woman. This is what caused her to breathe again. And Simon didn't like that. How could she breathe again? She's defiled. She shouldn't breathe again. She should not even be here. So verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, you see this woman? Simon, I entered your home and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with tears and wiped them with her hair. By the way, this is something that was customary for guests to do, Simon. You didn't forget that, did you? 
You gave me no kiss, Simon. Not even a welcome kiss. Again, something which was customary to do in our culture, Simon. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased kissing my feet. You, Simon, did not anoint my head with oil. <laughs> but she has anointed my feet with her tears and with this ointment. Simon, she is showing what true hospitality is, and it's coming straight out of her heart. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, Simon, loves little. Simon, you think you don't have much of a debt to pay? Those who have been forgiven little are just going to love little, Simon. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he kept looking at the woman. And he said, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You know, in these verses, Jesus reveals a couple of things. He reveals the state of Simon's heart. Jesus loves Simon. As a matter of fact, we could say that he loved him so much that he wanted to make sure he dealt with Simon's heart. For again, the gospel is for all. The self-centeredness of the natural heart of man is seen. Our heart is seen in Simon. A downright callousness of our sinful and dead hearts. How we seek to have our own righteousness and not have Jesus mess with it. So we could say, Jesus, by all means, come into our home. Let's sit down. Let's have some theological conversations. Yes, yeah, so let's talk about church. But please, don't mess up anything in my home. Jesus, you want me to change what? No, nah, Jesus, that can't happen. Let's just talk about, um, let's talk about the goodness of the law. Let's talk about how, how, how we can gain uh, some kind of a righteousness on our own. You want me to what? You want me to love my wife unconditionally? You want me to love my children and pursue them even in their rebellion? Jesus, you want me to put myself out there so I can look like a fool and lose my self-righteousness? Brother and sister, that's who we are. That's who we struggle with sometimes, don't we? But I love the fact that Jesus not only reveals Simon's heart, as he is showing him how he lacked hospitality and love for Jesus, coupled to that, he shows him who he is, that he is greater than our hearts, that he is not just Jesus, God in the flesh. He 
is Jesus, the Christ, God himself, who frees our heart with his pardon. And there are three statements Jesus makes to Simon and to the woman, which reveal he is divine. And if you got a highlighter, these are great to just highlight because they're found in verse 47, 48, and 50. These can really anchor our hearts. The first one, he says, I tell you, Simon, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Brother and sister, he knows the greatness of our sin. You don't have to hide. He knows. And he looks at you in the eye and he says, not only do I know you sin, but I know that your sins are many. He doesn't bypass our sickness. As a good doctor, he meets us. As a loving father, he sits with us. And he acknowledges the pain of our sin. God knows every little detail of our hearts. He knows the dark corners, the parts we like to keep hidden. He knows them and still chooses to love us. We're completely known and fully loved. Isn't that what we long for? To be completely loved while we're fully known? But he not only knows the greatness of our sin, that our sin is many, but in verse 47 and 48, he says these words to the woman, your sins are forgiven. He gives a declaration over our sin. He declares them gone. Friend, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, this is how you stand. Brother and sister, this is how we stand. Why? Because we've declared that upon ourselves? No, but because God, Jesus the Christ, makes that indicative of you. You are forgiven. Nothing can accuse you. Not even your heart, not even your mind. No internet history log. No unforeseen situation. No tragedy. No background check. Nothing can triumph and can trump the declaration of God's forgiveness over your life. Nothing. But then thirdly, he not only looks at our sin and acknowledges, he declares us forgiven, but he then, he then sends us in peace. Your faith has saved you, he tells the woman. Go in peace. Don't be troubled by your past anymore. Don't be chained down by what you think other people think of you by your... Listen, sin no longer has mastery over you. I, God, have forgiven you. 
the peace of Christ that surpasses all understanding now abides in you. So we no longer have to hide because of our sin. We've been looked at. We've been forgiven. And Jesus says, now live by faith in it. Live by faith in my declaration over you. Church, we live by faith in these truths. And this is how the forgiveness of Jesus is applied. It's by faith. And so, perhaps you're asking this question this morning. How do we know we're living by faith in Jesus' forgiveness? Well, the woman was an example to us. Do we love Jesus much? We know we're living by faith in the forgiveness that Christ has given us when we, as a repercussion of that, love him much. It's tied together with his work. In verse 47 through 48, after Jesus had told the story of the debtors and the moneylender and shown Simon how this woman had treated him as he should have treated him, we hear him say these words, Simon, therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven. First she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Now, what is Jesus telling us here? Jesus is not saying that the woman's great love for him was what earned forgiveness. In other words, it wasn't because she decided to love me that I then gave freely my forgiveness to her. That is not what Jesus is saying. It, 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 would, it would go against the whole story and the whole context of what Jesus here is teaching. But rather, what Jesus is saying is that her passionate display of love was a result of his forgiveness. Christ's canceling of her sin had awakened the true love in her heart. So the reason she loved Jesus much wasn't because she had mustered up the obedience to do so. It was because she had observed how much she had been forgiven by him. And this truth had affected her approach, how she approached Jesus, and what she gave Jesus. I love this. Because this truth has so impacted her. Condemnation no longer kept her from coming to Jesus she could have been held up by the door, church. She could have said, you know what? I don't know if I should be stepping into this religious crowd. She could have just shied away and started thinking about her past and her regrets and how people had looked at her. Maybe even when she peeked through the door, how maybe some of the men who knew her we're wondering, what is she doing here? <laughs> but she had believed that she had found in Jesus and in his message throughout the town forgiveness. And she came. And we don't know the details, 
But all we know, according to what Luke tells us, is that she went straight to Jesus. She bypassed the condemning looks, the guilty thoughts, and went straight to Jesus and to his feet. And out of gratitude, gave her offering. The forgiveness received had become stronger than the shame and condemnation. It had liberated her. It had caused her to freely worship. Who cares what other people would think? <laughs> this is my Savior. This is who I'm going to give my honor and my worship to. You know how much he's forgiven? You know, I wonder what she would have preached that day if they would have given her a mic. <laughs> I wonder what she would have said. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you. She probably would have started naming some of the men that she was with. And some of the men would have been blushing. But then she would have said, but I'm forgiven. This is not my life anymore. I've received a brand new start. And this is not religion. This is a relationship. This is something much deeper. This was a touch of the healer. Brother and sister, the gospel of forgiveness from Jesus liberates us from guilt and condemnation. And so we can go to him because he affirms us. I know your sin. You're forgiven. Go in peace. And that's how she approached Jesus by faith knowing that her forgiveness was found in him. And so he affirms her in that. But then look at how she gives. I mean, this was just a natural outcome of the work that God had done in her. She gave generously. She didn't hold back. She gave extravagantly. She, I mean, God, Jesus had just forgiven all her sins. How could she not give all of herself? See, when you and I recall just how indebted we were to Christ, that we were dead in our sin, that we had nothing to offer, and that in our debt, there was no way that we could pay back He paid it all. That when he went to the cross, he, his blood covered all our sins. And that he not only covered our sins, but in exchange, he gave us a perfect righteousness. He filled up our account. He took us from the red and, and placed us in the positive, in the black. How could we not give all of ourselves to him? So, Jesus, the forgiver of sins, are you tasting his forgiveness? It's free. All you got to do is just believe. That's all. And he can even help you do that. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we, Lord, we show up in so many places in this story. Lord, we're Simon, the self-righteous Pharisee, who too often we look at people with a lens of criticism and judgment. Lord, especially if they've hurt us, and if their sins are different than ours. Lord, we're so prone to doing that. And Lord, we're sorry. Please forgive us for our arrogance, of our self-righteousness. That's, that's, not, that's not who we desire to be, and that's not who you desire for us to be. Lord, we're, we're also this broken woman. And Lord, we're this broken woman at your feet. Lord, our, our, our sins are just numerous. Lord, we're, they've broken us. And maybe we're just not as public about them. Or not as notorious. But Jesus, you have told us that you have forgiven our sins. All of them are past, present, and future. Lord, for which we give you glory for. <laughs> Lord, would you have our hearts match our beliefs? Help us. Lord, change us. And Lord, bring your sons and daughters who are still not experiencing this goodness to freedom. Lord, grant us the grace to forgive, to love you much, to not lose sight of how much you've forgiven us, of where we've come from, but also of where you're heading and how you're holding on to us. Lord, the work that you did at the cross was enough. We hold on to it because your resurrecting power helps us to. As we pray in the name of Jesus, our gracious and merciful Savior. Amen.